0: I'm Amy Matheny. Welcome to Chicago Queer and Now, the podcast love child of Chicago Reader and Windy City Times. Today, we look back at 40 years of HIV representation in film and television with Dr. Jennifer Breyer, the Director of Gender and Women's Studies at University of Illinois at Chicago. And it's a very in-depth conversation about how the HIV virus first became known to us, how television and film had an opportunity to shape and change the way we viewed the virus and ultimately where we still are not seeing representations across many communities, especially black and brown communities, that help remove this stigma of the virus. But first, let's go to Kirk Williamson and the news.
1: I'm Kirk Williamson, and here is the news brought to you by Windy City Times. The Illinois House Judiciary Criminal Committee voted 18-0 to to approve House Bill 1063-HA1, which would end criminal penalties against people living with HIV, or PLWHs. Under current law, PLWHs face the threat of arrest, prosecution, and incarceration even if they do not transmit HIV to another person. Additionally, PLWHs may face longer sentences simply because of their HIV status. The HIV Action Alliance states, We are pleased that House Bill 1063-HA1 moved through committee today and look forward to a full vote in the Illinois House. Students spoke out April 12th against the removal of pride flags at a middle school in northwestern Indiana, according to CBS Chicago. And according to ABC7Chicago.com, a Black Lives Matter poster was also removed. LGBTQ students addressed the Dooneland School Corporation Board in Chesterton, Indiana, after teachers at Chesterton Middle School were instructed to remove the rainbow flags from classrooms. The order reportedly resulted in dozens of students walking out of class on April 9th. And today's Chicago Queer and Now trivia question is, what was the name of the first Chicago girl to appear on RuPaul's Drag Race? You think you got all the answers? We'll stick around until the end of the show, and we'll see about that. It's time for Best of Chicago from Chicago Reader pick up or download your copy of the March 18th issue to see over 250 winners reflecting the best in our city. For Best of Chicago, visit chicagoreader.com.
0: Television and film provide incredible opportunities for education and communication. So why is it after 40 years, accurate and empathetic HIV-positive representations are still needed? This topic was explored in the March 4th, Windy City Times pullout issue of Chicago Reader. To continue the conversation, I am joined by Dr. Jennifer Breyer. She's the Director of Gender and Women's Studies at University of Illinois at Chicago author of Infectious Ideas, U.S. Political Responses to the AIDS Crisis and curator of Surviving and Thriving, AIDS, Politics and Culture. It's a traveling exhibition for the National Library of Medicine. Hey, Dr. Breyer, how are you? I'm
2: good. Thank you. How are you? I'm great.
0: You know, I I was a little bit shuddering that I felt like I had a point of view on these past 40 years of <laughs> film and television of anything. Um, it definitely uh, let me know that I I've seen some things um, and lived through some history here. Um, and it's interesting that in 2020, I think this may have been Angelique Smith's um, tip off to this article that ran in the, the pullout um, in the reader in March 4th. Um, was this survey, this HIV stigma survey in 2020 that GLAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation and mm-hmm. Gilead um, did, which um, they conducted it. And it said that 89 percent agree there is still a stigma around HIV. Um, and of course, as I said earlier in my introduction, you know, television and film have been a wonderful way um, or can be a wonderful tool to allow people to hear stories they do not know, to educate themselves, um, and also just to demystify stigmas, bring us closer to things. Mm -hmm. Um, The beginning of this was in the 80s, but before we head to the beginning of it in television, can you just give us a little foothold into what is the advent of HIV and AIDS in the United States?
2: So... HIV AIDS doesn't start where we think it starts. We're not actually about to celebrate the celebrate commemorate the 40th anniversary of AIDS. Um, we would be commemorating in June and July the 40th anniversary of the first reports of AIDS. That it wasn't even called AIDS yet in the New York Times and the MMWR, the CDC's uh, weekly newspaper. Um, It's pretty clear that AIDS was endemic in at least major cities in the mid to late 1970s. Um, It was affecting uh, mostly, at at least by reports, um, people who were injecting heroin, um, and uh, that included a range also of gay men who were both injecting drugs and and having sex with men. Uh, And um, it's a condition that affects the immune system. And so right now we have a better understanding of what that means than we ever did before COVID. Um, And so I think it's just important to know that we still are just as AIDS didn't start 40 years ago. It started long before that. Um, we're also still living in a time of AIDS. We're not done with AIDS. AIDS is not over.
0: Well, and it's why it it is important to look at how we continue to re- represent people living with AIDS or sure. living with HIV. And um, it's interesting that you talk about this distinction of it starting in the 70s and Yes,, there was the intravenous intravenous drug use um, cases as well as um, the prevalence of it with gay men um and yet it seems like our earliest representations on television were gay men I mean Absolutely. I don't know was there an equal I mean I definitely know we have an early frost which was kind of that made for TV movie which mm-hmm. I kind of say is things you need to know right which television always felt like we're doing something smart we're telling you something you need to know about um and and then but almost around the same time we had Mark Harmon heartthrob on Saint elsewhere um Uh, you know, that character um, discovering they have HIV. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it an equal balance that you saw of both those, those kind of being the two worlds? These are the two worlds we're talking about that um, contract HIV.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I would say, Pretty much from the moment it's first reported in the New York Times in that July third, nineteen eighty-one column that people see—it's that long column. And I think it's page A twenty or A twenty-two, something like that. It's got this. Um, it's it's commemorated in every film, you know, but including uh, um, the, all of the films that talk about AIDS in the early 80s, they show somebody opening the New York Times and reading that article, right? Even gay men, they sort of imagine that it was like July 4th weekend and gay men opened the newspaper when they were, um, you know, sitting down for their morning coffee and saw this article. That, um, I would say that really at the core of it is the the sense that once it's identified as something at the time called GRID, gay-related immunodeficiency syndrome, um, it sort of erases the possibility that anyone else is affected by it. And the other problem with citing that article and that um, MMWR piece from the month earlier is that those people, those men were all white But if you look at the article from the New England Journal of Medicine from December of 1981, so six months later, uh, which is about about 11 people, uh, half of whom are IV drug users, half of whom are gay men, and two of them are both, uh, it changes everything. You know, like it's a totally different map of who is first affected. So that that list of 11 men still, not including women, um, four of them are black, five of them are white, and two of them are Hispanic, as they're called at the time. So it's really a different picture. But we assume that I think in many ways, and, and it's continued in things like early frost and Philadelphia and um, – Lots of the early material that the people who are first and most affected are white gay men. And that myth travels with AIDS for a long time.
0: Well, and that's true, right? Because that becomes the narrative. And honestly, we can say that has kind of been a narrative that has at least garnered the most attention. Absolutely. um, Over the years. I mean, I like to say if you're, you know, a white straight actor and you have hiv in a film you're going to win an oscar right i mean right. and the beginning of that was philadelphia starring tom hanks you know at the the guy next door right um and that and 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 so i mean i feel like there's two sides we can look at that that story um or that film or the impact of that film um so, I guess I want to ask you before I say what that maybe there's a hundred sides, I'm sure there probably is. Um, I'm making it way too binary, but um, uh, you know, what was the impact of Philadelphia and them taking an actor like Tom Hanks and him accepting that role, um, and telling that story? What was the impact of the film at that time?
2: Yeah, well, there are several of them, um, and there's not just one, it's not just the film, it's the fact that when he accepts the Oscar, he outs his right there are a lot of pieces of that there's the other piece of that film that i think is important which names is not the first time but is certainly a very powerful representation of the idea the what i would argue the myth that black communities are more homophobic than white ones so denzel washington's character um sort of uh, comes to stand in for that idea that there is somehow more homophobia and AIDS phobia in Black communities. The other thing that happens is that there's, there's no representation of Black people being affected, disproportionately affected, by HIV-AIDS, right? So there's this assumption that the, that gay is white and Black is straight. Mm. And it absolutely changes everything in positive ways it, it shows the 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 possibility and the dignity that people had and the struggles that they had and how devastating um it is to die from the opportunistic infections that manifest themselves in a person with aids um, it shows a kind of possibility of care that is more than just medical care you know familial or chosen family or biological family um, but it also re-in- it sort of reinstates or makes stronger a set of um of myths about mm-hmm. what aids was and also about what gayness is you know the sort of the the flamboyant. Like he is both Tom Hanks's character is both a lawyer, so he's sort of like straight appearing, but then there's also that sort of his interior monologue, which is like totally, um, queer. Uh, you know, opera queens or whatever. Um, so it's a it's a complicated story, and there's also the reality that you know. I don't know what it would have looked like for a gay man to play that role. Mm-hmm.
0: And, in, and in 1993, I mean, I think exactly. at the time, at the time there was, um, that was the only way it was probably going to get, it would have gotten made. It could have gotten right. made as an independent gay film. Many did. And yes. many of those, I think were kind of birthed out of, Larry Kramer and Terrence McNally, um, who were writing and, and others, I mean, obviously, um, We have Angels in America, Tony Kushner, and these amazing Mm -hmm. stories being told on stage because theater's gay, right? When we talk about what's gay, gay is white, you know, straight is black. Well, theater is gay. Mm -hmm. So our stories were told on stages, right? And then over time, I mean, it has taken time. Um, Angels in America made a a decade and a half, I think, or more after for HBO. And then The Normal Heart just made in like 2014, 2015, Which Larry Kramer tried to get made into a film and was was almost greenlit to be made into a film many, 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 many times. I mean, I think Barbara right. Streisand was one of the producers years ago, um, who tried to get it made. I think actually she finally ultimately helped to get it made in 2014. But and I want to talk about so much of what you just said, but I do want to say that 1993 was kind of a pivotal year because it is the year that the 1987 best um, bestselling nonfiction book and the band played on politics, people and the AIDS epidemic um, was made as well into an HBO um, mm-hmm. docudrama. Right. So as opposed to making it just a documentary, we cast Richard Gere again, a huge star. Um, white, straight, male, huge star, um, you know, kind of headlining this story from a more scientific or historical viewpoint on what was going on with AIDS. What was the relevance of that movie and how accurate um, was their narrative of HIV and its origins? (laughs) So Yeah. So I could I could have those are two things that happen in the same year. One is fact and one is fiction, right? Supposed.
2: Um yeah, and the band played on is a really complicated book and an even more complicated docu series, um, docudrama. Uh, and The Band Played On is probably one of the most read books related on the subject of AIDS. You know, when I was a kid growing up in New York City, um, taking the subway to, sc- to high school, I regularly remember seeing people with that book on the subway. You know, um, it was a bestseller. Uh, it's an incredible uh, document. It, it has in many ways defined what the history of AIDS looks like for uh, people who want to have a historical account. Instead of looking to a historian, they look to Randy Schiltz. Um, which I understand. It's an incredible document, but it has also a lot of myths in it. You know, it has, it is where we get this, um, and this is one of the myths that plays a really important role in the film um, version on HBO. It has this, this character, Patient Zero, Gaetan Dugas. Um, and it is um, you know, a largely fictional account of this uh, of of us of an experience of a gay man who Randy Schultz, for reasons that are not in, have never been entirely clear to me, although there have been some really interesting pieces written about it. He gets really focused on this French-Canadian um, steward, uh, airline steward, who he is convinced um, proves how HIV came to the United States. Now, by 1984, not long after the, the article is originally published, it's just like the, the scientist who did it says that this is not what I'm saying. This is not a patient zero. But part of what Schultz did was he created this character of Guy Tandugas as this person who was intentionally spreading HIV. Mm. Right. And it's it's this very internally homophobic representation of someone who we now know um, from work by a scholar named Richard McKay. Um, he was really sort of struggling with Gaetan Dugas as a French Canadian gay man, was deeply Um, immersed in queer communities in Canada and trying to live a a life that allowed him to survive and he wasn't able to. But once Schiltz paints that picture of this gay man who intentionally infects people, that sort of sets a course for a lot of representations that are going to hurt gay men in particular, and now increasingly black gay men in the long run who are more likely to be criminalized for their behavior than white gay men. So that's a sort of, mm-hmm. I don't mean to like take us into no, the no, present, no. but it is, it's a tricky thing because I think that that film has, I mean, the, both the book and the film tell an incredible story about how much the Reagan administration failed us. Failed to realize what was happening, failed to acknowledge the extent of the harm, failed to advance the kinds of care and the kinds of treatment and the kinds of prevention strategies that we needed, right? So. That is and, really and, the central and, part of that book that's important to
0: and and how absolutely prescient is that, given the year we've just had with the pandemic and our current and our sorry, thank God former. I can say former administration um which is, you know right. so similarly responded to it or or didn't respond. well, it's also interesting
2: that, you know, I was <laughs> I mean, Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, Robert Redfield, they all come, they all emerge in this moment, right? Um, AIDS is the thing that connects them to one another. It's how they knew each other in the first place and also um, sort of sets their careers in some really interesting ways that they appear again is a kind of curious fact that I think we're going to have to account for. It's going to take us a while to figure out what it all means.
0: Hmm. Yeah. What do you mean by that? I, Can you say a little well, more I just to mean, that? I, do you I was think sort of that there should about... be more diverse diversification and who is oh, actually no, the charge?
2: Or no, I actually mean. Um, just, I was thinking to myself a couple weeks ago, like here are some things I would have never said in 1988. Like I wish Joe hmm. Biden were president. <laughs> Think right. about that, right, in, in relationship to all that happens in the 80s. And that I really hope to see Dr. Fauci on television because he was not the person who you we thought was going to really get us to the other side on AIDS in 1988 um, in a way that uh, changes over the course of the 90s, to be sure. But he also has... Um, I don't know. There are so many differences between AIDS and COVID that it sometimes I just want to remind ourselves how different they are for one another and that we need to understand the history of AIDS, but we can't assume that it just um, can be applied to understanding COVID, I guess.
0: I understand. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. You know, it is interesting because as you bring up, you know, we have, one of some of the first things that started happening. And I think it, it creates, um, a connection to us when, especially in middle Americana or small town America, um, you know, it's like, it's even like with our stories as LGBT people, it's like, once we know somebody that we feel familiar with who is yeah. gay or trans, um, or non-binary or mm-hmm. has HIV, uh, you know, that, that, that helps, right. That helps us draw closer. It helps us be more curious. It helps us become more, grow more sympathetic, hopefully empathetic. Um, many of us may be empathetic, but so the news stories that started, Um, And this was not mentioned as much in the article. And when you see times, you know, it was really fascinating for me as a young person um, in the 80s was, you know, of course, 1984, Rock Hudson, you know, America's heartthrob. Right. And then, you know, five or six years later, we have Magic Johnson. I mean, could not be more polar opposite than rock Hudson followed quickly on the heels with Arthur Ashe. You yeah. know, so we're talking about three men, black and white all seemingly, you know, virile, um, you know, either sports stars, Olympians, um, you know, Oscar winners, movie stars. Um, and then that kind of projected then, Um, And that was all handled however it was, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I think I just remember the shock of Rock Hudson um, to so many, even like my parents, you know, Um, and then the more Magic Johnson, it was like, well, we didn't see the deterioration, um, right, because he had HIV um, at the time, I think, um, you know which was the distinction of like Arthur Ashe. I think when, by the time he was announced, he had AIDS um, where the virus has, um, do you want to explain the difference just so we're yeah. being clear? Well, it is,
2: it is also Rock Hudson's 85. He's not 84, which is important only because um, the, the name of this virus, HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, um, is coined in 1985, and there's that's another thing that Randy Schultz describes in Anne the Band played on, the, the sort of battle between U.S. scientists and French scientists to name this virus and to prove that it is this virus that, that evolves into something we call acquired immune deficiency syndrome. So it's important to understand that the we use the phrase today, HIV slash AIDS, HIV slash AIDS, to refer to a range of different things. It's sort of like, it sort of links together a bunch of different concepts and uh, experiences. Um, and that is only possible after 1985, when we have the idea that you can be infected with HIV. We also have a test that allows us to find, to detect HIV in people's blood. Right? So just think back to how we came to understand different kinds of ways of testing for SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Right. And that um, so that all happens in 1985. Uh, And the distinction between HIV and AIDS is important. And it's I'll condense lots of history into a couple (laughs) sentences because it's too complicated. Otherwise, acquired immune acquired immunodeficiency syndrome is an illness. It's not really a disease. It's an illness that manifests itself where hiv manifests itself in the human body and what it does what aids represents then is the way your body shows that it has that infection in it right so it there Part of what happens over the course of the 1980s and over the course of the 1990s is what it means to have AIDS, that definition changes over time. Mm. So in 1987, the CDC says you have to have one of these opportunistic infections, KS, Kaposi sarcoma, which is what you see on back to our discussion of Philadelphia, those, those purple splotches that you see on, on Tom Hanks' face or PCP, the particular kind of pneumonia or other conditions. It does turn out that all of those conditions are the way it manifests itself in male bodies, not in the way it manifests itself in female bodies. And so in 1993, women who are dying from AIDS basically force the federal government to change how AIDS is defined so that we now focus on um, the number, the, the amount of virus in our, in our bodies. So we mm. hear about having a viral load or about your T cell count. Um, and that, And you have to also have an opportunistic infection. That's what it means to have AIDS, to be diagnosed with AIDS. There's a period of time where people talk about ARC AIDS-related condition. Right. There are different but it is one is the virus and one is the is the way the illness manifests itself in your body. So I mean it's it's sort of esoteric, I know, but it actually really matters because I think just to put a final point on it. We should be comparing HIV. We should be talking about the relationship between HIV and SARS-CoV-2. And we should be thinking about the relationship between AIDS and what we're gonna now call long COVID. Those mm. are syndromes that, that are chronic, that people live with and die from both. <laughs>
0: Well, and that's the thing, right? Because there is also this stigma between, I mean, there grew to be over decades more of a stigma between, I mean, maybe not decades, early on, were you HIV positive or do you have AIDS? And there became this distinction, or have you now been categorized as living with AIDS, right? And well, they, there was they that kind of stigma
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they, that's because they, they, they appear differently on the body. So the stigma is, is associated with the appearance. Mm. So HIV infection doesn't look like anything. Right. It maybe looks like, Um, I mean, in our
0: brains, that was like, it looks like Magic Johnson, right? He's okay. I remember that was like, the whole thing was like, look at him. He's virile and he's this, you know, he's still this beast of an athlete, right? Right.
2: So he's not wasting. He's not, he doesn't have splotches. He doesn't have, you know, hollowed out cheeks. He doesn't have that haunch. Yeah, no, they are very different. One manifests itself at least in, in, um, in men, manifests itself in a very particular way that mm-hmm. I think um, you see in Philadelphia. Right. Or you see it in
0: Dallas Buyers Club with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Jared Leto, who dropped all the weight. Or you, uh, we see it a little, we see it a little in like even the Oscar winning Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, the story of Freddie Mercury in 2018. So that narrative has continued. Like what white men, gay or straight um, contracting through drug use or uh, through homosexual intercourse, sexual intercourse of sexual two men, intercourse, yeah. sexual intercourse of two men. Um, well, it's not even two men. It's sexual
2: intercourse, whether Sexual intercourse, period. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, but then you've, you've mentioned this often, you know, really where we just see these um, void of representation is in the black community sure. um, with HIV, uh positive representations. I mean, I remember, um, a female, uh, a black actress character on ER, um, right. was one of the first women, women, straight women I ever yeah. saw that I remember. Um, I think her name was Jeannie yeah. <laughs> actually. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, that she contracted it from her, her husband. Okay. Um, but obviously we see that Um, But race plays a role in this stigma, and it's taken us almost till now um, in the past uh, couple of years where we've had the television series Pose, Pose. which has given us HIV positive black characters. Again, they are historical characters because that 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 series um, by Ryan Murphy takes place in in. what we think of as like in kind of the New York heyday of the outbreak of AIDS. I mean, the late eighties, um, early nineties, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. um, is this new? Is this accurate that we're finally having this kind of representation to where more mainstream audiences can, see real people, because it just felt like we were in so many biopics, you know, whether it Mm -hmm. was Gia Karanji or the Ryan White story or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dallas Buyers Club, Bohemian Rhapsody. Those are all also based Mm -hmm.
2: on
0: true stories of people, um, at least. But this is just regular folk, right? Mm -hmm. This is just regular folk um, walking this journey.
2: Mm -hmm. I love Pose. I I, I do, too. as a historian of the 1980s, as a somebody who grew up in New York City in the 1980s, as somebody who has thought a lot about the history of HIV, I think it is some of the finest historical work I've ever seen in relationship mm. to AIDS. And frankly, in relationship to the world that I grew up in, which it looks more like than any other representation of yes. um, of the East and West village in New York in that time period. Um,
0: and it gives us trans characters totally, you know, um, not and it gives us but- and it gives
2: us sex workers and it gives us people who were engaged in a range of different kinds of survival strategies economic survival strategies and it situates the balls as a really important site for how black and brown queer folks learn from one another um, and, and are
0: become families to one another because and become families to one is, another. This is so much about the 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 lack of LGBTQ representations in the world, let alone HIV positive representations. At the time period when when HIV we became aware of HIV, right. um, you know, kids, people, kids, teens were were being you know, thrown out of their houses and driving to the, you know, heading to the big cities with San Francisco, Chicago, yeah. Atlanta, Philadelphia, New York. Right.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, and that's where we saw the, the increase of infection. I would imagine as our community went to those big and they're big cities, right. Just people yeah. are living but it's different in, lives. It's interesting.
2: I would say, so you, you know, the piece that is not quite here yet and that we should name in terms of, of, Art and film is uh, is really black black queer men um, who are poets who are making more experimental films. I'm thinking of Marlon Riggs. Like mm. those folks are part of this story. So the poets Melvin Dixon, Essex Hemphill, um, Joe Beam, Marlon Riggs. There's this amazing sort of thing happening along the eastern seaboard in places like Philadelphia and D.C., where there are longstanding, and New York, where there are longstanding Black gay communities, and here in Chicago as well. Um, And those are parts of the sort of artistic production of the 1980s in relationship to AIDS, and they never quite make it to the mainstream until Pose either. So it's not just that... And it took
0: Ryan Murphy to get them to the mainstream. So that also speaks to something that it took a white queer man um, who has achieved enough success that he could sell a series like Pose by doing Glee by do, and you know, nothing against Glee, but I'm just saying he had his own journey to even be able to tell this story. And, And we're still not hearing that story through, you know, from the community. Uh, on a mainstream. We are, I mean, we've had Noah's art, we've had some other series, but I mean, Mm -hmm. not to this level. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I, I, I was so awesome. It was so awesome for me to hear you say that you feel that it's, um, such a positive historical reflection because I I love it as well. But sometimes I don't know if that's my naivete of, you know, are, are they doing an accurate job and, and in kind of, um, telling us what
2: I think they are. I it. think that there's, there was an incredible throughout the 1980s, not in mainstream, um, but in sort of more avant-garde artistic practices, whether it's, um, you know, theater off, 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 off Broadway, or right. you're thinking about poetry or art installation or people like Bill T. Jones, the, um, the dancer. Um yes. You know, there's all these inc- contemporaries of
0: Keith Haring and yeah, Mosque exactly, and- exactly. Mosque
2: and yes, exactly. So that needs to be recentered in the way that we talk about the history of AIDS because it was it was made invisible by this myth that AIDS affected white gay men. Yes, and that not only had the effect of being wrong and making it possible for people to think, well, if I'm not a white gay man, then it's not something that matters to me, but it also erased the incredible life sustaining, um, artistic endeavors that, that helped people survive. You know, that, that black poet, that, that, uh, you know, that poetry, that, um, that incredible life sustaining poetry is to me some of the most creative and exciting things to see as part of the legacy of how you get to pose. Mm. To listen to Essex Hemphill talk about fucking in that way. It's just yes. part of how you get there. Right.
0: Well, and the thing that we're we're gonna wrap up here, but the thing we could then talk i'm sure a whole other um show about um is just then how black women have been erased from this conversation and all of the statistics that came out in the early aughts that the fastest rising um group uh where infections were growing the fastest was black women right um and so again and are we are we have we seen those representations as well? Not a you wonder. know, across television and <laughs> film. And I mean, I, I said ER. I mean, you know, but um, where are we seeing those as well? Well, I would
2: love people. I mean, I would love to talk with you about it when you do another one of these. I have just released a, a huge digital exhibition called "I'm Still Surviving." It's still surviving. One word dot net. And it is a living women's history of HIV, and it has stories from um, 40, almost 40 women living with HIV, the majority of whom are African American. Um, And, you know, it really raises a whole set of questions about how we think about Black women's health, uh, what we define as their sexual health, what we define as their reproductive health. Um, We are nowhere close to having. Anything like a realistic representation of um, black women's experience with HIV. Not even, I mean, I can't even think. I mean, besides that ER, maybe one or two things. I can't think of anything. Maybe you can I I can't.
0: I, I can't either, and I think that that's a, that's that's maybe the call to what I was going to close this with, which is what are the stories that we need to be hearing? Like, yeah. what are writers and directors and producers and storytelling tellers needing to do differently with HIV-positive
2: characters? Right. Well, we need to see first of all that people are still alive. So we need to see that there are people in our midst, all around us, who are living with HIV-AIDS. Um, and we need to recognize that, uh, that folks who are living with HIV um, have made some of the greatest changes, the most significant changes to our healthcare system that we have all benefited from, um, including uh, demanding different ways of developing treatment, different ways of testing how it works on the body, different ways of demanding that the government do things for us, and obviously changes to the whole field of virology, right? We couldn't have discovered SARS-CoV-2 as quickly as we did were it not for HIV. So I think that there are a lot of stories left that we need to tell um, about people who have died but also people who live today and what their lives and their survival can tell us about our own survival. So that would be my Thank vote. Thank you.
0: That would be my vote too. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Sure. Breyer. And you can, you can read uh, the article, um, That was the inspiration for this conversation, longer conversation, Angelique Smith's article in the March 4th issue of Chicago Reader um, in the Windy City Times pullout. um, And that can be downloaded at chicagoreader.com. And now it's time for the Reader and Windy City Times staffers to share some things you need to know. Get ready for some queer picks.
2: Hi, Aaron, editorial and business associate at The Readers. My queer pick for this episode is the organization Black and Pink. Black and Pink is a prison abolitionist organization dedicated to abolishing the criminal punishment system and advocating for queer people and folks living with HIV and AIDS. My girlfriend and I connected with their Chicago chapter a few months ago to join their PenPal pal program, which I highly recommend for anyone looking to meet and help incarcerated people. Check out blackandpink.org for more information. Hi, my name is Brianna Wellen, culture editor of Chicago Reader, and my queer pick is Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity is a movie from Full Spectrum Features, and Chicago Reader film critic Cody Corral called it a trip to gay church. Find out what it's all about. You can rent it at FullSpectrumFeatures.com.
0: Thank you to our producer, Dennis, music curator, Salem, and our newsman, Kirk Williamson, who's here with that queer trivia answer.
1: And we're back with the answer to today's Chicago queer and now trivia question. That question was, what was the name of the first Chicago girl to appear on RuPaul's Drag Race? Well, we've had lots and lots of talent from the Windy City appear on the big show, but starting it off in season one was Jade. Remember that? I'm sure you do.
0: And thank you to Dr. Jennifer Breyer for joining me today. Also, a big thank you to the music of Ono, oh Casey Ortiz, and Ripley Kane, all featured on this episode. That's it for our show. Find us on ChicagoReader.com, WindyCityTimes.com, subscribe to us on Apple, Google Play, or anywhere you download podcasts. I'm Amy Matheny. Thanks for listening to Chicago Queer and Now.
2: Punky.